Well, it's been an unusual start to 2022, has it not? First Sunday of the month, of the year, we canceled. There was just a, a little prayer meeting and uh, a prayer meeting that met in here that Sunday. And then the week before we had that ice storm, I was pleased that Vin Upham, uh, the former pastor here, a good friend of mine, preached last week. If you didn't listen to that message, which is available online, I encourage it. I thought it was powerful and moving and uh, reminders on prayer that we all really desperately need. Um, so I thank my brother for preaching that sermon. And he, did, he wasn't just a fill-in for me. I had, we had planned on him preaching for over a month. Uh, so it was a delight to be able to listen to that from home while we were in quarantine. And it is good to be back out of the house, out doing things, uh, even if it's, what was it, negative seven this morning? Even if it's negative seven. Well, today we return to the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. Turn there in your Bibles now. We're in Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. We return to Jesus' messages to the seven churches in Asia Minor, churches that the Apostle John likely ministered in and perhaps even planted. Today we consider the church in Philadelphia, Christ's message to the church in Philadelphia, like Smyrna. Jesus has nothing negative to say about the church in Philadelphia. They weren't doing anything wrong, at least not that he's highlighting. They were a healthy, a vibrant, a Christ-loving church, dynamic and powerful in a way, because this church looks nothing like what any of us would expect. And as we look at Christ's message to Philadelphia, we're going to see two different things, that Jesus' identity changes human history, changes the course of history, and Jesus' identity recreates humanity. We'll see these two things today in Christ's message to the church in Philadelphia. Let's read it. Read it along with me, um, starting verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Neither shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your word, that through even what we have just read, you are speaking to us. God, give us ears to hear. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we might hear comprehend, understand, gain wisdom, 
grow in our faith, look more like your son. I'll do all these things by the hearing of your word. And Lord, I ask that you would be speaking this morning. That it wouldn't just be a man's lips flapping, but it would be your Holy Spirit speaking to our hearts. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. As I have said in past weeks, the most important way, the most critical way to understand Scripture is to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. The Bible has a way of unlocking its own mysteries, and so we need to be looking at the Bible to see how it does that unlocking. And if we come to Revelation without the Old Testament, and seeing how the Old Testament is brought to bear in Revelation, if we don't do that, then we will be hopelessly lost. We will misinterpret this book. We will not know what this is saying. And additionally, there are all kinds of New Testament writings that bring lots of illumination to the book of Revelation. And so we're going to see a lot of scripture today. We're going to be doing that scripture, interpreting scripture bit so that we can hopefully walk away from this message understanding something deeper, more profound, and very hopeful about Christ's message to the Philadelphians. And so we see right there in verse 7, as I have argued for many times in the past weeks, that we should read this as, to the pastor of the church in Philadelphia writes, the words of the Holy One, the True One. It's hard to see it right now, but Jesus is masterfully engaging with the needs that the Philadelphian church has and, and he uses a powerful, powerful way of encouraging them. And we're going to see uh, just how beautiful and profound and the knowledge that, God, that Christ has of this church. So intimate. He's so connected to it. And he knows exactly what they need to hear. We'll see that, we'll see that as we go through it. Verse 7, there he says that he is the Holy One. The true one, meaning he is the source and the standard of all that is holy and true. All else must be measured against him. In the same way that a yardstick needs to be 36 inches. It might look like a yardstick, but if it's 35 and three quarter inches, that's not a yardstick. It falls short. The measurement needs to reach the standard. Jesus is the standard for what is holy, for what is true. So what, if what is measured is found lacking, then that thing is unholy, then that thing is untrue, is false. Which is why we have such a desperate need to be clothed in Christ, to be found in Christ, to be hidden in Christ. And because Jesus is the Holy One, the True One, He is the source and the standard That means that he is the one, the only one who is rightly positioned to be the ultimate judge, the judge of all the earth. He is the only one. And if Jesus were not holy, then he would not be righteous. And an unrighteous judge is an evil judge. And if Jesus were not true, then he could not be just. And an unjust judge, that is an evil judge. Holy and true. These are the exact qualities that we would want, that we would desire for the ultimate judge to have. 
And Jesus says that it is he who is holy and true. It's a title we'll see again in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 6, we'll read, Those martyred during the tribulation cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? See, judgment and Christ's identity of holy and true are being linked here. Jesus is the holy one. Jesus is the true one. And just a quick note, I want to tell you a little bit more about this verse I just put up. I said it in, the sermon, in sermons past. The Greek word translated as earth here is the, is the word gi. Gi is often and it's often translated as the word land. Land. So important to see that because for the Jews, the land plays a major part in God's covenant with Israel, with Israel, with the nation of Israel. The state of the land was a reflection of God's of the collective heart of Israel. Let me say that again. The state of the land was a reflection of the state of Israel's collective heart. And so when Israel was not loving God, when they were breaking covenant with him, God used a variety of means to bring destruction upon the land. And when they were loving God, when they were fulfilling their covenant requirements, then God brought abundance to the land, plenty, And it flowed with milk and honey, metaphorically speaking. So the land acted as a mirror, reflecting back to Israel the state of their collective heart. The whole context of the book of Revelation is that the Jewish people have rejected their Messiah and have murdered him. They have rejected God. They have burned to ashes their covenant. With Yahweh, therefore, the Messiah, he who is holy and true, the king, the righteous and just judge, he brings judgment upon that land in a great and awful tribulation. And not only have the Jews rejected and killed Jesus, they have rejected and killed the followers of Jesus. It's what we're seeing in Revelation 6.10 passage that I had just read. Again, those martyred cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell, read, on the land? These Christians are killed for their love of Jesus, for their proclamation of the gospel, and the first to persecute persecute and martyr Christians are the Jews. It's recorded all over the New Testament. The Romans and other peoples, they'll they'll follow suit later. But the Jews initiated, they are the very first to spill the blood of God's adopted. What is so significant is that of all the peoples of the earth, the Jews are supposed to be the people of God. They're supposed to understand their, their knowledge of God is unique. They have the scriptures, they have been given the prophets. They have the covenants, and they are the ones who have rejected all of these, rejected their Messiah, killed his followers. 
And so these martyred saints, they cry out to him who is holy and who is true to bring justice upon the land of the Jews, to bring an end to what is unholy and false, to avenge their blood, which has been so unjustly spilt. And trust me, all of that has profound meaning for the church in Philadelphia. The other half of Jesus' self-revelation in chapter 3, verse 7, is that he is the one who holds the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. When Jesus says that he has the key of David, when he holds the key of David, he's virtually saying the same thing, is that, that he sits upon the throne of David. And in December 26th, sermon, which is the last sermon I preached, I showed how Scripture reveals that this title is way bigger than Israel. This title, the he who has the throne of David, who has the keys of David, who sits on the throne of David, the son of David, it means that Jesus is king of the nations, of all people, ruler of the kings of the earth. And because Jesus is the high king over all the earth, His authority is absolutely supreme. When he shuts, no one can open it. When he opens, no one has the strength to close it. And with that phrasing, Jesus is drawing upon an ancient prophecy that we must see and we must consider because it brings meaning to Jesus' words right here. In Isaiah chapter 22, God is speaking against a false steward of Israel. This steward governed Israel, but he was not the king. And he was utterly failing to lead the people. He was failing to lead them closer to God. He was leading them away from God. He was a false steward. And, this faith, and so what God does is he removes this false steward and he puts in a faithful ruler. A faithful ruler that is ultimately pointing towards the Messiah that will come. And so in Isaiah 22, verses 21 through 23, we we read this. He shall be, this is of the new and good steward. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. There was a false steward in Israel, and God was going to replace him with a true one. Just as it was then, so it is in Jesus' day. There was a false steward, there were false stewards in Jerusalem. Religious leaders, and they were saying that they knew the way to God, and they were leading the people towards God, but they were blind guides. They didn't know what they were doing. They were leading the people away from God. And so, the Father takes their keys of stewardship. He leaves their house desolate and their land barren. And the key to the house of David is given forever to the one who is holy and true. 
The Apostle John is using the exact same wording that we see in Isaiah's prophecy to announce to every person, every person who knows the Scriptures, what God is doing. The Son of God is making an announcement, a loud and clear declaration that he is tearing down this old system and its false stewardship that has become corrupted, and he is replacing it with a new kingdom and a new authority, namely him and his kingdom. He is removing what is false and unholy, forever establishing something that is true and holy, righteous and eternal. And as we will shortly see, the pivot point of that transition is a great tribulation. The one who is holy and true, who holds the key to the house of David, he continues to speak in verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. The king of all the earth has set before this Philadelphian church an open door. And what he has opened, no one can shut. So Jesus doesn't come right out and say it here, what this open door is, but soon we're going to see what stands open before these Philadelphian Christians. Jesus says that this church in Philadelphia has little power, meaning they have little influence, little sway, little resources. This makes them the opposite of the church in Sardis, which we considered, well, a few weeks ago now. Sardis had a powerful reputation. Everybody knew about Sardis. But that church was dead on the inside. Though they had a lot of resources to work with, though they looked really good on the inside, that church was dead. If they did not repent, Jesus said that he's going to snuff out that flickering flame in Sardis. But conversely, Though the Philadelphian church had little earthly power, they were mighty in faith. It's a little church, but it is strong because despite all of their, the pressures and the tensions and the false teachings and the accusations and the persecutions, the same that all these other six churches are facing, the little church in Philadelphia remains steadfast. They have held the word to be precious It has been a lamp before their feet. When all the world has called Jesus just another man, a myth, unimportant, these Philadelphian Christians have honored him as the Son of God and the King of Kings, their Savior and their Lord. And so clearly it is is because of their steadfastness to the Word of God that an open door has been set before them. And what is this open door? Well, now we can see that in verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. This is the second time in Revelation that the synagogue of Satan has been named. Remember again that each one of these seven churches primarily is composed of Jewish Christians. And 
Just as we saw in Smyrna, there are other Jews that are making accusations against these Jewish Christians in the church, and they're saying that they're not truly Jews because they follow this man named Jesus. So they're not truly Jews. Can't call a man a god. In every corner of the known world, these Jesus-rejecting Jews were persecuting and, and even killing Christian Jews, Messianic Jews. The book of Acts is a very clear picture on that. Everywhere, everywhere Paul went, he was hunted and persecuted. They even chased him from town to town. But in a great... Well, Jesus, God in the flesh, who is the standard and the source, true and holy, he declares that any Jew who denies him is not a Jew. Do you hear that? Any Jew who denies Jesus is not a true Jew. They are false Jews. They are liars and their accusations are false. The Christians in the Philadelphian church, they are, they are being true to the word of God, the man, and the writings. They are, therefore, the true Jews those Christians in Philadelphia. And so what we have is this profound, great shift in human history. The way that God relates to man. It's not through bloodlines. It is through being born again of the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other way. The door of bloodlines of traditions and of law, that door is closed. Christ has opened a new door, a door that will stand open forever. And this is one of the main arguments of the book of Galatians, which we studied as a church a number of years ago. So I'm going to go through a number of verses here and show you that Galatians is saying this very thing. Let me ask you this, Paul writes, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying that in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption, adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's amazing. That is history changing. Though the Jewish bloodline still exists, I believe will always still exist, Scripture is clearly teaching us God does not have a special plan 
based on Jewish blood. His special plan is revealed in the blood of Christ. Any person cleansed by the blood of him who is holy and true thus becomes holy and true. Jesus is the source and standard. Not genetics, not geography, not tradition, not law. Christ. And false Jews who do not receive Jesus as Messiah are considered Satan worshipers. They are pagans and they worship a false God. That's what Jesus is saying right there in chapter 3, verse 9. Look at it again. He calls them the synagogue of Satan. You know what this means? These Jesus-rejecting Jews are counted among the Gentiles. They're like the nations. They dwell beyond the borders of the true city of God, outside of the camp. They are the branches that have been pruned from the vine. And Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Jesus is the standard by which all men are measured. Be they Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, male or female. To be God's people is to abide in Jesus through faith. To reject Jesus is to be rejected by the Father. When you begin to understand that history-changing reality, then you can begin to understand what Jesus is saying to the church in Philadelphia. See in verse 9, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. That was a promise that was given to Israel. But like 1 Corinthians one twenty says, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. The promises are not given to bloodlines, They are given to those who have entrusted their life to Christ. And so here in Revelation 3.9, Jesus is referring to a prophetic promise and it pops up many times throughout the Old Testament. But this is just one of them. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples. And they shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters they shall, shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. So again, that was a promise given to the the Jews, given to Israel. But right here, in Christ's message to the church in Philadelphia, he takes that promise And he gives it to the church. It's the church's promise now. Church made up of Jesus-loving Jews and Gentiles. Now, though Isaiah's promise, we just read, it has not reached its final fulfillment. Have not the last 2,000 years shown us that this prophecy is already unfurling before our very eyes? 
People from every nation and tongue have come into the church. So metaphorically speaking, which prophetic language does consistently, the nations are bringing the children of God into the church as if they're carrying them on their shoulders. And to say that they bow down before the church as to say that they bow down before the church's king. Some of the mightiest and wisest, according to the world's standards, have been humbled and made low by the truths that the church carries. Think about the Apostle Paul. One of the foremost up-and-coming Pharisees of the day, voraciously persecuting the church, and then he eventually enters that church after being utterly, entirely humbled. Being brought as low as a person can be brought. And those that have been made holy and true by him who is holy and true, they are honored when the rebel becomes the humble. And it's not because we Christians are superior, not at all. It's because our king is. And we know what it is to be the rebel, to be the arrogant and the proud. And thank God that he has humbled us. And revealed to us who truly is king. Now in that promise that Jesus is giving to the church in Philadelphia, there's a a great vindication happening for the people of God. Because those that proclaimed themselves true in this world, Jesus reveals them to be false. Those that the world had been proclaiming to be false, Jesus reveals them to be true. Those that were persecuted and hunted and called worthless, Jesus is saying that they are worthy. What a promise that is for a little powerless church that's persecuted and afflicted. How glorious to know that this promise given to the church 2,000 years ago, is alive and in our midst today. And notice the last part of verse 9. They will learn that I have loved you. At some point, apostate Jews and really all people, they will realize whom God truly loves. And either it's going to come through humility in this life, through repentance, or it's going to come on that final day when they bend their knee. But one day, all people will realize that God's promises are for those who Jesus loves and who are loved by Jesus. Again, the prophets, they were foretelling this. God says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, 
I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. Do you know how to tell if this prophetic promise is talking about you? It's not by abiding in laws. It's not by a privileged lineage. It's not by holding to certain traditions. This promise is yours if you look to Jesus and see in him your glorious Savior, the King, the Holy and True One, and you trust that because of his life, you are redeemed. Because of his work, you are redeemed. And then in Christ, this promise is yours, wholly yours. You are precious in God's eyes and honored, and he loves you. That is a promise for the church. This is the open door. The one that Christ has opened. The one that no one can shut. There is a way to God. And Jesus has opened it. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and come out and find pasture. The way is open, and Jesus made sure of it, and no one can shut it. Therefore, anyone, Jew or Gentile, they may enter through him and be saved. Enter through Jesus and there find the true promised land. Enter through Jesus into a deep and satisfying love of the Father. These words of promise Jesus graciously and lovingly gives to the church These are the exact words that are meant to carry the Philadelphians through a terrible, terrible tribulation. Look at verses 10 and 11. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Because the church has been faithful in their hour of trial, Jesus will keep them in a greater trial that is soon coming. I want to be clear. It doesn't mean that Jesus will protect the Philadelphian church from the trial that is coming or that he will keep the trial away from them or that he will rapture them away from the trial. Jesus means that he will guide this Philadelphian church. He will guard them. He will watch over them. He will will be with them as they pass through the impending flames. And look at what verses 10 and 11 say. A trial is coming upon the whole world and it will test the land. And Jesus is bringing this judgment soon. 
The whole world, that's a reference to the whole known world. It's the world as they would have conceived it in the first century, aka the Roman Empire. So they're not thinking New Zealand and Tonga and Chile. Thinking Roman world. And it will test all those on the earth. Again, that's the Greek word for gi. So let us read that as land. The trial will be a test for the Jews. Wherever they dwell. Because the old covenant has become obsolete. In the promised land that will soon reflect it. As the writer of Hebrews says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Jesus was coming not bodily, not in person, not to end history but to bring judgment upon a people that forsook his promises, that beheld the living word and crucified it. The one who is holy and true was coming to destroy apostate Israel and bring their unholy and false religion to an end. Jesus was going to bring judgment upon the synagogue of Satan. And for those who today say that they take a literal interpretation of the Bible, you must see that Jesus is talking about something soon. That's what he explicitly says in verse 11. And it is soon, not for some future generation, but for those dwelling in Philadelphia. If Jesus is talking about a tribulation and a people more than 2,000 years in the future, then what in the world? What in the world is Jesus keeping these Philadelphians from? The same Philadelphians that that he has been commending for already enduring sufferings. Again, Jesus is not talking about a coming in person. He's talking about a coming in judgment. And he is using prophetic language. Language that we saw in chapter 1, verse 7. And it's language that we see reflected all over the Old Testament. He uses the same type of language when God comes upon judgment over Egypt in Isaiah 19. When God judges Assyria in Nahum chapter 1. When God judges Judah in Jeremiah chapter 4. In countless other places. You probably could count them. In other places as well in the Old Testament. It is language that's reflected all over, declaring a coming judgment. And just as Jesus had said, only a few years of this revelation, Isaiah's promised land would be made into a smoldering ruin, and hundreds of thousands, no exaggeration, hundreds of thousands of Jews would lie dead in the promised land. More would be sold into slavery. A famine so gripped Jerusalem was so severe that history reports cannibalism broke out. Eventually, the Roman army would utterly destroy Jerusalem. They would tear down every stone. That temple, that temple would be utterly ripped apart. Not one stone left upon another. And once when Jesus walked through that temple with his disciples, he said these words. You see all these temple buildings? Do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left one here. There will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. 
And so we see that the prophetic words of Christ from Matthew 24, from Revelation, they found their horrible and final fulfillment in 70 AD when that temple was torn down. For every Jew that did not know Jesus, it was like the end of the world. Everything they thought, everything that they believed, all of their traditions was literally burned to the ground. Is a tribulation so great that, that do you know the Jews mourn that day, even to this day? They have a special day of mourning for it. And it is this tribulation that Jesus will personally guide the Philadelphian church through. They will hold fast because he will give them the strength to do so. He will be their rock. He will be their refuge. The door that he has opened, nobody's going to close that. Indeed, he will keep them. The very sort of encouragement that this Philadelphian church needs as they face down this coming darkness. The words of Christ are to them a shield and a sword. They shall overcome just as all will, who take to heart the words of Christ, these words of Christ. Not only will Jesus keep them in their hour of trial, but he will build out of them something glorious, something eternal, something, something heavenly. Look now at verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven, my, comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Hmm. Notice that the temple of the living God is not made out of gold and marble and stone. Rather, it is made out of Faithful conquerors, the sort that are found in Philadelphia, the sort that are found in Emmanuel, perhaps. Jesus was soon bringing Jerusalem's temple to ruin, and in its place, he was building a living temple. And I hope that the words of 1 Peter are ringing in your mind right now. Because you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. That's a temple to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For all human history, before Jesus, God's presence was most concentrated within the temple. Or at least that's what it represented. Right there in that veiled and hidden room called the Holy of Holies. And once a year, a single man was permitted to enter that room under extremely strict conditions. And if he broke those conditions while he was in there, he was dead. Actually tied a rope around his ankle so that if he died in there, they could pull out his corpse. Do you know what happened when the nails tore Christ's flesh? The veil that hid that room was torn in two. The Holy of Holies, so exclusive and impenetrable and hidden and unknown, was now exposed to all 
The holiness of God comes streaming out of that into the world. And that old house, that old temple, that is now barren and desolate. The holiness of God forever dwells now in the hearts of men and women. And look how Revelation 3.12 says that the faithful within the church will never go out of the temple of God. Will never go out of the temple of God. That means that wherever these living stones go, so goes the temple. It's not confined to a hill in the Middle East. But this temple of the living God moves throughout the whole earth. A new and holy priesthood, filling all places with the fullness of God. Carriers of the most powerful recreative force on the planet. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this is from God, who through Christ reconciled, to us, uh, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, listen to this, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling what? The world to himself. The way that God is reconciling the world to himself is by building a temple that can go into the whole world. That is the fullness of God, amazingly, wherever it goes. And as we go, the world is being reconciled to God. That is what 1 Corinthians 5 says. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation. That is not just like mediating a fight and bringing reconciliation to it. It's bringing reconciliation between a most holy and true God and a people that are destitute and broken and have absolutely no hope except in Jesus Christ. And we must go into all the world proclaiming him who is holy and true. Look again at verse 12. God writes three names, three names upon the faithful. The name of God, the name of the city of God, and Jesus' own name. You know that we're going to see that reflected a number of times in Revelation? And I bet, perhaps, this might be a little shocking. Revelation 14.1 Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had the name of who? Who had the name of his Father written on their foreheads. Revelation 22 The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the new Jerusalem and his servants will worship him. 
They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There's a link between the Christians in Philadelphia, the 144,000, and then those that dwell within the New Jerusalem. What is the link? They are the elect. They are the sons and daughters of God. They are the followers of Jesus Christ. Those called by the Father, rescued by the Son, and bound together by the Holy Spirit. All of us, together, have written upon our foreheads the name of the Father, the name of Jesus, and the name of the city of God. So what is this new Jerusalem? Which is written upon us. Which is written upon the church. Just as the temple has been replaced by living stones, so also has Jerusalem been replaced by a great multitude that none can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That passage that I just read comes after John hears about 144,000 and he records their number. And then he looks and that's that. That is what he sees. Not 144,000, but a number so great, worshiping the Almighty. They are the ones who have written upon them the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the city of God. The city of God that comes down out of heaven. The new Jerusalem. Not a city built out of stones and walls and structures. It is made up of lovers of God. Spirit-filled conquerors of worshipers of the Lamb. Perhaps it's made up of you. And what we're reading is your future. All those buildings in Jerusalem that temple on Mount Zion, that land of promise, it all was pointing to a coming reality, a greater reality, a reality that was open to the world through Jesus Christ and a reality that changed forever human history. The old covenant of law was pointing towards a greater covenant of grace and love. The law brought guilt and death. Grace brings promise and life. And no longer are the people of God, exclusively the Jews. Or you don't have to become a Jew to become a person of God. The church has become the chosen race and the holy nation. And we studied that in 1 Peter chapter 2. What great promises Jesus was giving this small, powerless church in Philadelphia. Small and powerless, yet faithful. And that was the kind of hope that would carry them through any trial, any tribulation. It was the kind of assurance that, they, that will hold them fast in the faith, faith, no matter the assaults that come against them, and surely they would come against them. 
For this is the Savior that takes what is little and powerless and accused, and he recreates it. The something so big nobody can number it. A power so great because of him who is ultimately powerful. And what is called false is revealed in Christ to be eternal and true. This is the heritage for all who conquer. And I want you to see so many of the words of Christ being summed up in Isaiah chapter 60. The sons of those who afflict you shall come bending low to you. And all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Father, we praise you for promises that are so great. So great that they often seem a bit beyond our reckoning. And we know we deserve no shred of them. But how freely you give them to us through Christ. What a gift we have in him. Lord, I pray that each each person's heart here would be riveted upon him. and See in Jesus holiness, a truth, a Savior, our Lord, King of all the earth. And today, bow their knee and worship. God, let us be the humble who are made holy and true because we are cleansed in the blood of Christ. Let us be counted among the elect. And upon each one here, may you write your name, the name of your son, the name of your city. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.